crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this month I'm talking to Joe Bradshaw. I contacted Joe after she posted on LinkedIn that she was grounded due to a poorly puppy, so if any of her contacts wanted to see her, she'd be in the country for a while. I'm not sure how her post came to be in my feed, we don't know each other, or, or at least we didn't, but I was intrigued and took a look at her profile. As I said in my hopeful message to her asking if she'd like to come on the podcast, I feel like a lot of people would be interested in your career, and particularly the intriguing shift from being a supply chain manager at an electronics company to a freelance mountain expedition leader. Having interviewed her, I'm even more sure that Joe's story will appeal to all... Uh, <laughs> so I don't have a name for my listeners, do I? Um, supistas? Sup- serendipi- serendipiteers? I think I'll, I'll need to workshop that. Anyway, I think you will really like this episode. Jo began her career working with horses, and at one point envisaged settling down, marrying a farmer, having kids, getting lots of dogs and running a stable. The story of how she then ended up leading expeditions of enthusiastic amateurs up some of the world's tallest mountains takes in a few unexpected turns, as you'd imagine. But it's not just Jo's career path that I've learned a lot from. It's also the knowledge she's picked up along the way, communicated with the skill and experience of someone for whom professional speaking once something that she found intimidating, is now a major part of her career. I was particularly taken by two things she talks about. The first is the importance of every single person to the successful functioning of the teams she leads. Coincidentally, this is something I posted about recently on LinkedIn after listening to a brilliant episode of the Breaking the Fever podcast about office power dynamics. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The second thing that really stuck in my mind was the concept of champions of your life, the people who are there at just the right time, with just the right support to supercharge your life and take you to whatever your next level is. Jo mentioned several of these people as she talks, and I hope you've been lucky enough to have had some champions of your life too. Maybe now's the time to just quietly appreciate those people and to think about whether you could be a champion in someone else's life yourself. OK, housekeeping. Unfortunately, the sound quality on my end of the line isn't as good as I'd like it to be, I was trying a slightly different setup from normal and it didn't work, so all I really did was cause problems for my long-suffering editor Anna. Sorry Anna. She's done a fantastic job, but you might still hear the odd echo and the ending is a bit abrupt as well, so sorry about that. In terms of swearies, I think this episode is clean, so no problem if there are little ears around. They might even enjoy the references to flatulence caused by high altitude. However, I thought I would just put a trigger warning in now because Joe talks about the earthquake that struck Nepal in 2015. So if you or someone you know is affected by that event and you don't want to hear about it right now, then I'd miss out the part of the podcast between about minutes 38 and 44. Other than that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. My name is Joe Bradshaw. I am an outdoor instructor, expedition leader, and public speaker and leadership coach. I live in Salisbury. I have two dogs. Um, yeah, and life has not turned out how I expected it to be. <laughs> well, I suppose maybe the starting point would be why hasn't it turned out the, the, the way that you imagined? Um, going back to you know when you're at school and you're told that you have to have a job for life and what on earth do you want to be when you leave school which I think is such a vast question for a teenager you're sort of in school picking your subjects 
And what do you want to do for the next 60 years or 50 years of your life? It's like, who knows? You know, <laughs> some people do know, and that's great, but so many don't. And and when I was at school, I was horse mad and wanted to turn it into a career. So my plan was to leave school after the first year in sixth form. I achieved AO levels because I was last year of O levels and A levels as they were. I then went to work at a really amazing horse yard, which was an international dressage rider. And we had a stud and they had lots of working pupils. And it was a really amazing place to be for a year. And then I was going to go to agricultural college to get a diploma in horse management, and then probably go and work on an estate and run yards and, and that type of thing. And and that's, so the first bit of that happened. So I went to go and work at this amazing yard in Brockenhurst, which is now not that far away from me, um, down in the New Forest. And I loved the work so much that I then binned agricultural college, because I wanted to learn and this sounds really, uh, a pardon the pun, but on the hoof. I didn't want to go back into an education environment that I hadn't enjoyed at school. I would much rather learn as I work and as I go. So I stayed on at Catherston Stud for another year. And then I went out into the big wide world of work. And I actually got a job in New Zealand. Wow. Like you do. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It was a kind of a natural progression for a lot of people who work on yards and who train horses. You go and do a season or more abroad. So Is that right? I hadn't, hadn't realised that was a thing. Yeah, it's quite a thing. So, and particularly in New Zealand, there's an, even though the, the horse circuit's quite small, there's an awful lot of English grooms out there. And I was a very shy person at the time. I'd had an interview on the phone and all of that sort of stuff. But because... Nobody knew me and I felt I could be whoever I want to be. And I was working with horses in an amazing country. So what could possibly go wrong? Um, quite a lot, <laughs> as it seemed. So I got out to New Zealand and five days after I arrived, the father of the daughter I was working for went to prison for tax fraud. I know, plot twist. <laughs> wow, I wasn't expecting that. No, he's like, I wasn't either. I tell you, my dad, I rang my parents and my dad was like, you are coming home. And I said, look, he hasn't killed anyone. He's just done a, done some, you know, dodgy dealings, but the family are safe. And arrives this amazing Mercedes six birth horse box and they had no one to drive it. So at the age of 19, I got my HGV license in New Zealand um, like you do, you know. And at yeah, Catherston, yeah. I'd driven some lorries and I'd driven the big tractors and everything. So I was used to large vehicles. Um, so then I drove the daughter of the guy who had employed me. So we went all around the North Island showing the horses. And I was driving this amazing horse box. So at the grand old age of 19, it was was pretty good good place to be. And I was at one show and one of the horses I was riding was just going so sweetly. And, you know, you get... In climbing, we call it a flow state. And what you do in many other industries as well, you know, you're just totally in the zone. And this is how I was with this horse, Bess, at the time. And it was just going really beautifully. And I remember sat on the bank where all the international riders just watching. And one of them came up to me afterwards and he said, look, if you want to come and work at my event yard, then there's a job for you. And of course, I was like, well, why oh, not? Wow, That's like the dream, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that you imagine as a kid. You know, if you, as for me, I'd be like kicking a ball against the wall and hoping that somebody would come along and say you're better than this come and play for England that's amazing that that actually happened that's very cool for me it was very much a sliding doors moment of if they hadn't been sat on the bank or if the horse hadn't been going quite so well blah 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 and I'm not a believer in well what would have happened if xyz but there are definitely moments in your life when somebody is looking down and going right it's your turn to shine now off you go so I went to work for this chap for another four months and then I came home and worked at a couple of different yards. So I was getting to the stage where I was getting towards my mid-twenties and, and thinking, I can't live like this and for an extended period of time. So I either need to get my own yard and really sort of try and make a go of it that way, but I wasn't in the financial position to do, or to park the horses, so to speak, for a bit, go and see what else is on in this world and see what what happens and at the time I was going out with a farrier like you do <laughs> so, oh sorry what's the farrier a blacksmith 
Yeah, so the guy that that shoes the horses. Got it. Okay. So, you know, it was a sort of stereotypical, I mean, he could have written a book about it, really. You know, groom goes out with Farrier. It's a bit Jilly Cooper, isn't it? It it? is a bit. (laughs) Yeah, another plot twist here, because... Oh, no, Jilly Cooper related. Go on, go on. I left the horses. I went to go and work. I just needed to get a job. So I applied for a department store sales assistant role that was a department store was opening in Aylesbury because that's where I was based at the time. And amazingly, they gave me a job. I had no experience of customer service or working indoors or even wearing other than jumpers and boots. But there was clearly some, I think they just needed people actually, but (laughs) (laughs) there was obviously something about me that they thought, yeah, she's trainable. So yeah, I got this job in the department store and then my relationship with the blacksmith started to basically disintegrate and then we split up. So, and all these things I look back now, I was like, well, I wonder what would happen if that hadn't happened. I wonder where my life would have gone if because what I had in my head was you know I'd marry a farmer or a farrier we'd get some lands I'd have horses probably a yard that I ran livery yard or what have you train horses if it was a farmer then obviously he'd go farm you know have children lots of dogs live in a farmhouse all of that sort of stuff for me that was my ideal life and at the grand old age of sort of 23 24 it totally disintegrated (laughs) I was like god what happens now I have no idea and you have choices in life about how you deal with stuff don't you it doesn't matter what happens in your life good or bad it's what you do with it and I was like well I can either just fall apart which is what I felt like doing or I can just get on and do the best I can in my job and see what else happens. So I did and I in retail I was promoted in the department store I was promoted to assistant manager of a couple of departments and then I went on to run an early learning center. So I wanted to move myself forward and because in life at that time I thought success meant having a job in management, having your own house, getting married and having kids. Because again that's the societal norm of what was then an acceptable, successful life. I didn't know that you could have a successful life without all of that because it just wasn't part of my world at the time. So, yeah, weird. Plot twist, a (laughs) go-go. Yes, I was running a store and it was, you know, a good job and the store was doing really well and I was working really hard, but it, it just... It felt like something was missing. And then I saw a job advertised for to go and work with horses in America. And I applied for the job. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I can always come back. And if it works out, brilliant. I can stay in America for a bit. So I got the job and it turned out to be a complete disaster. Because oh, no. <laughs> even though they looked after me well, so I was paid decently, which was a change. I had weekends off, which you never have. But the... The whole setup of the yard and the school and the horses and the relationship between the husband and wife and me was all just a bit weird. I was supposed to be out there a year and I didn't want to spend a year in this sort of really weird environment. So I came back home after three months. I decided that it wasn't worth my time of life. So when I got back, I got a job at the local newspaper as the business representative. So I would work with the editorial team as to what the themes were. And then I would sell to businesses um, and get them to advertise or get them to do an advertising feature where they paid for a bigger advert and then got some editorial as well. So I then went to work at an electronics company, again, still in sales, And I stayed within that company for five years and was promoted a couple of times. And it was, again, a really good education of how big businesses work. And then the big electronics crash happened. So Was that 2001? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah, well remembered. (laughs) You'd be be surprised how how often those big global events come up in these um, talks. Yeah, you're not the first person to say that 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 crash changed their sliding door moments yeah Yeah, definitely so my job became redundant but they moved me back into the department where I'd started five years before doing a job that I was doing five years before even though I was on the same pay it felt like a massive step back and I didn't want to be moving around figures on spreadsheets it wasn't what I'd worked my way up to do but again it was it was a Friday night I opened the the Bucks advertiser looked at the job section and in there was 
a role as an account manager for Business Link. And back in the early 2000s, Business Link was a government funded business support organisation that helped small and medium sized enterprises get connected with the right people to help their business grow. And that's either through networking events. I feel like a salesperson now. <laughs> you're, you're doing a very good job. Yeah. Very much. It was a big part of my life. Sure. Yeah. So I went for, the, went for the interview and it all went well. And I fortunate to get the job. And then three weeks into the job, I went to my first networking event and they hadn't told me at the interview that at networking events, you stand up and do 60 second elevator pitches. And I wasn't that keen on on standing up in front of groups of people. I wasn't that confident. I was confident in the job I was doing, but I wasn't a confident speaker. And my boss's boss had come with me. (laughs) So when they got to the point of, this is what we have to do, I turned to him like, Jim, nobody told me about this. He was like, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I think the whole just being thrown in at the deep end was probably the best thing because if I get a chance to think about stuff, I will talk myself out of it. And I was very much that person back in those days. You know, Is some- that right, though? Because you went to America, you went to New Zealand, you didn't talk yourself out of those. But because they were doing something that I really loved doing. Uh, sorry, I get the distinction. Whereas standing in f- up in front of a group of 30 people having to talk about something I didn't know a huge amount about then (laughs) was a bit bit daunting. But I think for me, it was the best thing I could have done because I just had to stand up and do it. And everybody else in the room was so encouraging because they knew I was new. And they had all at one point had to stand up for the first time and talk about their business. They were definitely seeing it. They were empathising with me. And in my head before I started, I'm like, 60 seconds of my life. That is all it is. It's just 60 (laughs) seconds of my life. And if I muck it up... I'm not going to be sacked. What could possibly go wrong? And it went okay, I think. Well, I was asked back anyway. And it taught me a huge amount about being a little bit bold and, you know, what is the worst that can happen? So I was much more involved in funding projects. And it was a really interesting role. But I remember sitting in a meeting one day talking about economic development, thinking, how on earth have I got here? Because again, it wasn't where I wanted to be. It was a great conduit for something. And I didn't know where I wanted to be, but I knew this wasn't it. I'm really interested in people. And Mm. that, I think, what drives me, helping and supporting people is what drives me. Right, from from somebody who was quite shy at school to somebody who seems to get their energy from making connections between people. Maybe a gradual process, but how did it happen, do you think? Yeah, I think definitely a gradual process. And I think the pivotal moment for me at Business Link was probably standing up and doing that 60-second <laughs> elevator pitch where someone says, no, just go and do it. We put you in this role because we know we have confidence in you, whether you think you can do it or not, go and do it. And especially when I was a partnership manager, I was organising lots of events and seminars where I was standing up at the beginning and introducing the speakers. And on some occasions, having to do the speaking myself. And for somebody who, even 10 years before, would have run away. (laughs) And I think before Business Link, I didn't really, even though I was in retail, and so you have to be customer facing, but you've got sort of two foot of counter in front of you whereas socially I find and I still do I find social situations a little bit more challenging because I don't have that cloak of comfort you know when I'm working now out in the outdoors I put my gilet on I put my my baseball cap on and I'm in work mode right and I stay in that mode from the time I get to the airport to the time we arrive back in the UK you know and I'm in that very much I can tell people as much as I want them to know about me personally although a lot of my life is online now but again online I choose what I say to people of course a lot of the times in my work especially when I'm an expedition leader I'm in a role of huge responsibility and I work a lot out altitude and a lot of things can go wrong at altitude and you plan for them not to do so but you need to have people in the right frame of mind so if I start dropping my guard 
then that's when things can happen. And I, I don't want that to. So I think it's just trying to get the right balance. But like anything in life, we're not a finished product. You know, you don't start your working life going, right. It does seem to be an idea that uh, genuine leaders, I'm doing air quotes on a podcast, not great. <laughs> genuine leaders do show some kind of vulnerability. But I think a lot of leadership, a lot of people in senior leadership positions, not like myself, but I can imagine that they think of it very much in the terms that you've described there, which is that in, in many cases, certainly for big organisations, people's lives are at stake. You know, you're thinking about you've got this experience from where stuff is very immediate. You make a decision and the consequences are pretty rapid, one would imagine. What's your thoughts on that balance? It is hard. I think when I started leading in the outdoors, so my first overseas expedition was to trek part of the Great Wall of China and I had a group of 40 girl guide leaders and an assistant leader, my co-pilot and a doctor. I'd been on three challenges before with a company that I then started leading for and so I'd seen different styles of outdoor leadership and I thought I needed to be at the front saying follow me I'm trying to be everybody's friend and I thought that way they're going to come along with me. Well, that's rubbish <laughs> because when stuff needs to happen, you're then their foe. So you're a very good cop, bad cop, and there's not much in between. And that can be very confusing for people. I think they're like, oh, she's changed. And I learned very early on not to mother people because I then gradually got into climbing at altitude. And when you're in a situation on a trek, I mean, even, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro or walking to a base camp is you need people to not become what we call guide dependent. So dependent on us as leaders, hmm. we need them to listen to what we're saying and take on board the advice and then to do it rather than going a little bit off piece. And I don't want sheep the whole way, but it's getting people to understand that there are consequences to their actions. And we can give everybody the right information for them to have as safe as possible trip or expedition, but their actions have consequences, either good or bad. So by drinking plenty of water and eating as much as you can possible and walking slowly, you have a much greater chance of achieving your goal at altitude. So that's the good consequence. If you choose not to drink water and you choose not to eat and you choose to run around like Bambi, you're going to get very sick and we're going to send you down. You know, so it's very basic. So in that style, I then had to adopt, which has become my norm now, a kind of tough love approach. So I am much more of the mindset now that I want to teach people as much as I can in the early stages of an expedition so they understand what they're doing and that more importantly, understand why they're doing it. And it also empowers them by adding to their knowledge about the environment they're in and they then feel more informed and then they trust you more because they know what you're, what you're saying is correct. And then it's just a really good cycle. Um, yeah. Whereas I think my early stages of it was like, this is what I'm telling you and you have to do it rather than the sort of slightly softer side of this is what I'm advising you and the best advice is to listen to my advice. <laughs> and these are the reasons why. I use a term which is commonly used in the, in the military, actually, and I'm not military background, but it's basically don't be a dick, which I think works in all forms of life. So it's, <laughs> but what I do on expeditions is I change it around so that I, that everybody has stories of when things went right and when things didn't. So I sort of mm. weave it into the conversation of, oh, I was a real idiot when I did X, Y, Z. And because a lot of at altitude, they're like, well, have you ever, you know, had altitude sickness? Mm. And I was like, yeah, sure. My second, you know, time on Kilimanjaro, I was leading the group and I was trying to be everything to everybody. And I was giving them all the advice and then not heeding to it myself and I got sick and I couldn't summit which for a leader is you know pretty devastating yeah. but that particular trip taught me more that a I can't be everywhere for everybody so I need to impart more information to them front load it all that I am human and that occasionally with all of the right stuff that I do I will get occasionally sick and also it meant to me that I needed to work closer with my in-country teams and we needed to be one team rather than me the British leader and then the local crew because right. 
that divides people straight away. So I'd gone from, you know, trying to be everybody's friend to do as I say, not as I do, which clearly doesn't work, <laughs> which I found out. Worth a go. And I very much want to get my, it's so important for me to work well with my local crew. And we are, I say, it's one of the first things I say in, a, in an expedition briefing when we get in country is we are one team. There's no clients, leader and local crew. We are one team because without them, we couldn't do it. And without you, they wouldn't have jobs. They wouldn't get paid. So we have to work together. And I call sort of the guys that I work with my co-pilots. So again, it puts us all on one level because the guy cleaning out the toilets and the guy putting up our tent and the guy carrying our kit is as important to me as the leader, the local leader who is setting the pace at the front of the group. Because we are all part of the same machine and and if one fails, it just doesn't work. And that's very much um, how I run my expeditions now. And I think people get so much out of it if they get to know the local crew and they then get to know each other. We go through the Tuckman's forming, storming, norming, performing thing. I'm not familiar with the phraseology. It's absolutely brilliant. So when you're next sort of starting in a team or, or working in a team, you'll see everybody goes through this process. So you're forming a team and everybody's very polite and it's like, you know, oh, my name's Joe and I'm this and what do you do and everything. And everybody's yeah. very polite. And then you get to the storming stage where everybody gets a little bit annoyed with other people's uh-huh. habits. And on my expedition, is you, you're stripping people away from their comforts. So there's no showers and there's no Costa coffee and there's no, you know, croissant. Sounds awful. Well, there's no bed, you know. It's, it's, yeah, it sounds terrible. And it's, <laughs> I love it. So you're going really back to basics. So people get annoyed very quickly. And then you gradually come up into the, the norming stage where people are getting used to other people's habits. And actually, well, if they have a habit, maybe I do. So maybe that's as annoying to them as theirs uh-huh. is to me. So maybe I'm just going to get on with it. And then you get into the performing stage, the last stage, which is where everybody works as a team. So we need to fast track that process. Yeah, I was just thinking, how long does that take? Well, it depends on the team, actually. Some people never get through the storming stage, which is quite <laughs> interesting. And everybody goes through it at slightly different phases. I love the psychology of expedition. So not only at altitude, so that has a big element um, because you feel pretty pants most of the time. How do you feel if I've never been at altitude? So what does it make you feel? So it's a combination of things. So altitude sickness has various stages. So it's not an illness. It's a range of symptoms. Most people will get headaches which are caused a lot by dehydration. So you're breathing more altitude and you're breathing drier air. Therefore, it's going to dry you out. <laughs> very, I mean, very, this is all a very sort of rudimentary level. So you're, you're A, you're going to get thirsty. You're probably going to get a sore throat. You're possibly going to get a headache because dehydration causes headaches. So that's one side of things. And that's easily fixed with drinking more water or just liquid, actually, soups and tea and coffee. You are generally potentially going to feel nauseous because at altitude, the air pressure is lower. Therefore, gases expand in your body. Right. So you fart and burp more, which is lovely. (laughs) Okay. We're going there. We're being explicit. That's fine. Very explicit. I'm selling it really well here. Um, But also, because there's lower air pressure, the blood in your capillaries can leak. And blood in your stomach, as we know, when you've had a nosebleed and you swallow some blood, it's going to make you feel sick. So that, that can make you feel sick. But also what altitude does... Your body goes into very basic mode where it shuts down some uh, reactions that you would have at normal at sea level. So it gets rid of the hunger response generally. So you go from feeling absolutely fine to feeling sick and you you miss out that hunger response. So when you feel nauseous at home, you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't eat. (laughs) That's going to make me feel worse. But actually altitude, having a sweet or a bit of a Mars bar or an oat cookie or something will help because you are actually hungry. And there's many more symptoms as well. I make it all sound amazing, but if you put in place the right strategy for you, so drink, well, it's not even for you, it's generally drinking more water, snacking regularly and eating well, trying to get 
as decent sleep as you can because sleep is a little bit broken at altitude keeping warm enough walking slowly so that your heart and lungs are, are running on a sort of equal state rather than peaks and troughs which means therefore your energy levels are nice and steady rather than peaks and troughs so it's just being kind to yourself so that sounds like a kind of witch's brew of symptoms if you want to call it that, for meaning that everybody's just going to be in the worst possible mood. So how on earth do you get through the storming bit? I would just be storming the whole time on that. Again, very early on, it's all about front-loading stuff. I can guarantee out of the whole seven days you're on Killy or the three weeks you're in Nepal or however long the expedition, you're not going to love every minute of it. (laughs) You just, you won't love your life every minute for a week. But because people pay for these expeditions and they train hard, hopefully, and they've got all the kit, maybe... And then they're like, so it has to go well and I have to achieve my goal and I have to do this. So there's so much pressure. So if you just take that pressure off and go, it's all right to have a bit of a bad day. It's not going to last. Make friends with the fact that you're not going to love every bit because then you take that whole pressure. So, and it's learning to accept that you have chosen to be there. You signed on the dotted line. You wanted to come and climb a 6,000er or do Kilimanjaro or trek the desert, what have you. And in that, the adventure is adventurous and you have to make friends with being uncomfortable because it's all part of the whole expedition. Concentrate on the things that are available to you and forget about the things that aren't. So don't moan about the fact that you're not getting your cost of coffee every morning or there's no showers because it was all in the information. You, you knew when you were going on to Kilimanjaro there's no electricity. You know, I get people sort of butting up to me, try almost wanting that fight. Right. You know, you said that this was going to happen or blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, I didn't actually. This is actually what I said. Words were going in, but you were listening with the intent to reply, not with the intent to understand. Sure. I love that saying. It's the communication gap, isn't it? Communication gap, exactly. You're hearing what you want to hear, not exactly what I'm saying. And it's it's great when you're in a tent uh, on a mountain and you hear someone out, well, Joe said X, Y, Z. And I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> That's not what I said. <laughs> and like we were saying earlier, vulnerability is a very uncomfortable place for some people to be. Yeah. And it takes practice. And asking for help is also quite an uncomfortable thing for people to do, particularly asking for help from a female leader, which can be quite challenging for some, male or female. And I used to get very, not angry, but and not even upset, but just sort of disappointed that... Oh, the worst. That's what you say to the other kids. I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Just so disappointed. <laughs> and I get used to get disappointed with myself that either... I didn't make a connection with people or they didn't enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. But that's not for me to put on myself, is they choose how they can react to stuff on an expedition. And if their choice is, I'm just going to be grumpy, then fine. And I've done everything I can to to put it right. And I've had chats and we've been honest, or I think we've been honest, and then it's still not right. Well, I'm not there for camp entertainment. I'm not there to make it the best experience of your life because you have to be involved in that. It's not all down to me. So so we've got you at Business Link in quite a, well, conventional, if you don't mind me saying, you know, it's a kind of fairly standard career path. And then fast forward to today and you've led over 100 expeditions around the world. Can you put those two pieces together for me? Right. So I'll take you back to 2003. And I moved from the electronics company to go and work for Business Link. And before I left electronics company, I think I was bored one Friday afternoon. And I saw an advert on the internet for a parachute jump for Asthma UK. Okay, yeah. It was fairly local to where I was, and I had a massive fear of heights. So I'm like, and this was in my early 30s, I'm like, right, I'm going to conquer my fear of heights by throwing myself out of an aeroplane. You know, of course that sounds logical, not. So I was, and I thought, well, I've never done anything for charity, so I'll give it a go. Yeah. So I signed up and I sent an email around the company and there were about 400 people in the company. And I raised just under £500, I think, because everybody thought, what on earth is she think she's doing? And a very good friend of mine, and again, this is the whole serendipity thing, a very good friend of mine offered to drive me up and back from the jump site. And her words were, just in case you can't drive back. (laughs) 
kind of comforting, kind of not. But I think really for her, it was to make sure I got there because I was very good at saying yes to stuff and I was very bad at then actually following it through. So I would then, before the event, I'd go, no, I can't do it because come up with a reason or what have you, which is quite boring for the people around you. And so, yeah, so off up to the jump site we went and I did this parachute jump and it was the scariest thing I've ever done. And... Then a few weeks later, a flyer came through my letterbox at home back in the day when we actually got proper post. And it was for a bike ride in Peru with for Asthma UK with a company called Discover Adventure who are based in Salisbury. And I took it to work and Caroline saw it and she's like, brilliant, that's your next thing. And I, I said, no, I've done my thing. I was leaving Memek shortly and I was going off to be in Business Link. I'm like, I want to concentrate on that. She's like, no, we need to capitalise on on this, whatever you've got out of the parachute jump and do something with it. So I came up with a whole list of reasons why I couldn't do it, as some of us do. And the, the last one was I didn't have the deposit money. So she said, fine, I'll pay it for you. I'll sign you up. And you... This is a work colleague. Yeah, it's a work, very good friend of mine. So you, you right. can pay me back in instalments. So I was like, damn, I have no excuse now. <laughs> She's basically stripped everything out and everything else was like I didn't have a bike that's fine we can borrow one or I wasn't very fit fine go and get fit or I'd never done any fundraising before well and this was the day before so if you google anything you know we will work it out and that's what your friends are for it's asking for help and so I went in the end of April 2004 and did this bike ride in Peru and raised a load of money for Asthma UK I didn't come away from it going that's what I want to do with the rest of my life because I didn't even know you could do that the leaders on there one lived in Peru and the other one sort of did treks and bike rides and, and had other jobs as well and so after this bike ride yeah. I really enjoyed it I was so far outside my comfort zone it was untrue but I started getting a taste for adventure and I was still very much a no person but there was something in me going yeah I need to do something a bit more exciting with my life so I then did a bike ride in New Zealand in end of 2005 for the Anthony Nolan Trust and I'd chosen that charity because a good friend of mine had been diagnosed with leukemia whilst I was in Peru. And it was just a natural progression to then support that charity. And out of that, from the New Zealand crew and the Peru crew, a few of us went to Cuba at the end of 2006. And I did that as a personal challenge rather than anything else. And it was there. And again, it's the people I talk a lot in talks I do about champions of your life. So people who are there to go you can do this, you've got this, and we will help you get there. So that Caroline at Memet, a friend of mine who sort of did the parachute jump, she was definitely one. Jackie, who was the leader in Cuba, was like, well, send your CV into Discover Adventure and see what happens. You've got the right attributes and you can do it in your... You can you can work as crew in your holidays from your normal job. That's what a lot of crew do and a lot of leaders do. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that. That would work. So in 2007, I started leading and crewing and then they off and again it, it it's the little things that you do extras so on london's parises we were telling 80 clients the same information i'm like why don't we just write it on a board you know, it's, not... it's genius and they said well would you like to come and work for the company come and work in the office and you can still lead trips and we'll give you know i had the section of the company for the open challenges and we were trying to grow it so i then left a really well-paid job uh, with great benefits, my own house up in Milton Keynes or near Milton Keynes, a fancy four by four, great holiday to ship myself and my two dogs down to Salisbury to live in a rented house. I bought a banger of a car. I halved my salary. I initially rented out my own house and then eventually sold it. And I had this massive life change. But I also knew it was a bit like when I was going to America that I knew that if it didn't work out, I could go and find another corporate job and get back into that life. And I was at Discover Adventure for a couple of years. And then the job was getting too busy in the office and I wasn't going to be allowed out. So it was a difficult decision in a way financially but an absolute no-brainer that I'd go freelance and that's what I did at the beginning of 2010 I left regular employment I went self-employed which is scary anyway so exciting I've just done the same myself yeah it's terrifying it's a massive leap of faith isn't it and went freelance and I got my mountain leader qualification and I worked a lot as a leader for Discover Adventure 
as well as a couple of other expedition companies. And I got into schools, le- uh, leading schools expeditions and teaching DV and assessing the DV award, Duke of Edinburgh award. And it gradually sort of built up from that. I hit 40 in 2011 and I wanted to do something a bit different for my birthday. So I thought I'll go and go back to my horsey roots and go and do like a horse track in Montana or Wyoming or wherever. And I couldn't find anything that fitted in the time of year that I was free. So instead I went and climbed 6,000 meter mountain like you do <laughs> so, yeah I would have done it would I have done it I wouldn't yeah wow uh, but I didn't think I would then and it was only because I then started working with a chap called Rolf Ustra who was leading for Discover Adventure at the time and him and his wife Marnie had set up 360 expeditions and they were running a trip to Mirror Peak in Nepal and I'd worked with him the year before on Everest Base Camp expedition trip so it was like well actually that would be a good a good thing it it was it's good for my cv my leading cv even though i was there as a client it shows that you're you want to do stuff personally sure it's going above six thousand meters on a longer expedition and it's harder and everything's bigger is is six thousand meters a is there some significance to that in in your world particularly because you can have some very technical mountains like in the Alps there are some hugely technical mountains that are all snowed up and iced and everything and very steep that are under 4,000 meters but for an altitude perspective it's a it can be a little bit of a sort of next stage for people this wasn't a particularly technical mountain but it was just under six and a half thousand meters which altitude wise is quite significant right not quite as significant as Everest when I got there eventually but even at how tall is Everest? Sorry, I should know. That's all right. No, no, it's 8,848 metres. Right. So above 8,000 metres is called the death zone. So you, there's 30% oxygen. You breathe in that 30% of oxygen that gets into your system, which again is all very basic. So there's 21% of oxygen no matter where you are in the atmosphere. But because the pressure is lower, less of it gets into you. So when you're breathing it in, you're basically breathing in 30% worth of what you would if you were at sea level. So that's, and you cannot sustain life above 8,000 metres for any great period of time, which is why it's called the death zone. Nice. Nice. That's where we're headed. (laughs) Not so good for life zone or say, no, let's just be brutal and call it the death zone, you know. So these things can have quite an impact on A, mentally how you're feeling about it, but also physiologically as well. So when I went to do Mirror Peak, again, Rolf became, took on that sort of champion mantle, not that he knew or I knew at the time, which was... You've got this. You can do it. You are capable. You just need to believe it. Because I had never planned to do any of this, I hadn't set any of the life goals that maybe somebody when they're 20 go, yeah, I'm going to climb Everest or what have you. Right. I can't. People like me don't do that. I'm female and I'm in my 40s and I haven't climbed much and I don't have much experience. It's like, well, fine. Age doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what gender you are. And go and get the experience. It's as simple as that, really. So... And even up until 2014, when I made the decision to go and climb Everest, it wasn't a thing for me. But I think like anything is once you set your mind to it, you work out a way of doing it. You know, if you want it badly enough, you will work out a way of getting there. It's not a how on earth is this going to happen? It's like, how am I going to make this happen? Yeah. And it was, I say fortunate, it wasn't fortunate at all. But I was able to go to Mirror Peak because my uncle had passed away the year before and left me a little bit of money. And again, it's that sort of, if he hadn't have done, I couldn't have afforded to go. So no, probably none of this would ever have happened. I, I got to Everest in 2015, having found a sponsor, I was fundraising for a children's mental health charity called place to be i'd done quite a lot of mountaineering before that to get myself in a position where i didn't need to be reliant on anyone else but the sherpas and rolf was there you know as a sort of backup well the sherpas are much more of a backup because we can't climb the mountain without them they're absolutely phenomenal and i knew i was in a good position to do it and then the earthquake happened so rolf and i were at camp one on the on the mountain on the 25th of april 2015 when the earthquake happened so that for us, well, for anybody who's on the mountain that survived, it was end of expedition. And you, you think at that point, well, I've tried my best and I've got as far as I can. Mother Nature has taken it away and I'm, I'm probably not going to come back. And this is luck, actually, is when we got back down to base camp, we were helibacked down two days after the earthquake and we were digging for our kit. I mean, it was just a disaster zone. It was horrendous. 
and we were digging for kit and trying to help clear up and I found my mobile phone and I wanted to find it because it meant communication with my parents and my friends and I got hold of my mum and then I text my sponsor and said I'm sorry it didn't really work out and we were having this little conversation at a risk base camp it's all a bit surreal and then he said would you go back and immediately having always been that oh no I said yeah yeah absolutely because I had unfinished business at that point. It was like Mother Nature had taken away this 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 experience and given me something completely different. And uh, he said, great, go back next year and we'll continue with the fundraising for the charity and go and give it another go. And to have one opportunity where you're sponsored to climb something, especially of the nature of Everest, is for me, it does, I say to people, it doesn't happen to people like me. And they said, but it did. So it can do and it does. And then to have a second chance was pretty phenomenal and so we went back in 2016 and summited the mountain thank god (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's it has taught me so much about god so much about so much actually it taught me a lot about my own mental health especially fundraising for the children's mental health charity it's taught me a lot about post-traumatic growth as well as post-traumatic stress what does that mean i haven't come across that yeah well it's really interesting so you go through a traumatic phase in your life and you deal with all the emotions that are surrounded by that. I guess it's a bit like the forming, storming, norming, performing bit. You go through a process and you get to a stage where you start learning and growing from this traumatic event. So you can either get stuck in the stress and de-stress or you can naturally or with therapy move on forward. And I found that giving talks actually helped me massively because it made it a normal event in my life even though it was a very abnormal event you know Nepal hadn't had an earthquake for 85 years and who knew we were going to be at camp one on Everest when it happened and we lost three of our Sherpa team oh my goodness so you sort of add all of this stuff together and then you learn to grow from it so I mean the old adage of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is it sounds a bit facetious at this stage but actually it's true you know I have made sure I've come out of it a stronger person because I didn't want it to beat me so I can either let it dictate the rest of my life or I can actually use it to make the rest of my life stronger and I had a few friends say to me we would totally understand if you said no that's it I'm going to call it a day I'm done with Everest and all it is and and I said I can't I can't because it was nothing that I'd done wrong to stop the climb if I'd been ill or if I'd broken a leg or if I'd just been stupid then fair enough but it was totally out of my control. So I needed to make sure that I made it a an event that wasn't going to cause stress in my life. It had to become an, a normal part of my life. It, it's happened. It's on my life CV. You know, some people go through much worse than that and some people don't. But it's it's happened. And, and again, it's how I deal with it that counts. By doing talks, it made it much more normal. And it was actually a very good therapy for me. Others didn't want to talk about it at all. And that's how they deal with it. And that's fine. But for me, I I lessened the magnitude of it by each time talking about it, it became just sort of, oh, yeah, it happened. You know, it's a regular part. And I still when I do talks to corporates or schools, and we get to that stage of the talk, I still get goosebumps. And I still, you know, but it doesn't make me cry anymore, which is uh, a good thing. (laughs) going to to do a talk quite soon after it you know I used to I I did used to get quite teary because it was such a impactful event for many reasons so but yeah I always ask my guests is is how do they define success you know I think we were talking about it earlier weren't we early very much earlier on in the podcast that you know when you leave school you're it may be drummed into you, depending on where you go to school, that success is getting a well-paid job and getting a house and getting a you know a fancy car and getting married and having children and getting a dog and all of this sort of stuff. So people are told that that is success and earning more money will mean that you're more successful. Well, I learned quite early on that actually that for me wasn't what success meant. I could earn decent money, but did it make me successful as a person? Because I wasn't happy. So I think my success is very much connected with a fulfillment in my life. 
where I feel that I am moving forward. So I'm learning new things and I'm progressing in my mountaineering career or what have you. I'm trying new things. I don't earn a huge amount of money doing this as an expedition guide. But for me, the financial reward, and obviously I need to pay my bills and I'm not on minimum wage, but for me, earning big money does not mean I'm more successful at it. What would mean you're more successful at it? I'm For me, what I'm, tr- I'm striving for now is to keep on doing what I'm doing and get better at what I'm doing. Because we, you know, even though I can be described as, you know, I'm, I'm a good leader and everything, you can always improve. You Again, we're not the finished products. And I, people say to me, well, I, I'm not at the same level as you. Well, I'm not at the same level as Kenton Cole or, you know, Di Gilbert, who's a, another 8,000 metre, well, she's not another because I'm not, but she's an 8,000 metre guide. And I, I'm not sure I want to be there either. That's not, well, I want to climb more 8,000ers, but I'm not sure I want to take clients on. I'm not sure. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. So, and for me, it's about being, it's the whole growth mindset and being open-minded to other possibilities in life and I know that my expedition life is not going to last forever um age is a one factor and injury and everything and also it's the want to actually be in a very cold high environment (laughs) more often you know sometimes you just want a shower I get that show yeah and I know it wouldn't have been like that because I love it too Mm. much now but when you stop loving something that you do then it's time to to find other and and in later life I'd love to be a foster carer because Mm. it's I I don't have children and it's not going to fill that need but I feel that I I have now have the skills and the temperament to hopefully give a child or some children a you know a bit more of a hope and a, a good hope. Yeah, good yeah. hope exactly. So I I say very much that I have a, a bit of a portfolio career. Mm. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. I would like to increase the public speaking side. I do a lot of that anyway in the leadership coaching because that is good long term and it means mm. that I don't have to be trying to breathe in 30% of oxygen. <laughs> it's great. You don't have to do the death zone, yeah. No, but quite a lot of it is you need to keep current in order to be current. So I lead expeditions because I love it. It tops up my resilience all the time. It then gives me more to talk about uh, because Everest is part of the story. It's not the whole thing. Mm. You know, I'm Mm. now climbed six of the seven summits of the highest mountain on each of the seven continents last year i was a tesco's delivery driver when lockdown happened yeah no curveball <laughs> wow that came out of nowhere when lockdown <laughs> happened and all of my expedition work was cancelled you know 23rd of march i spent a week on the checkout at my local tesco and then i went driving and i did that for 11 months so it's all part of the bigger picture and and the story it's not just Everest isn't just one and most important chapter because everything around it is as important for me so I think success for me is just keeping on doing what I enjoy doing and that's not necessarily what I'm doing now because who knows in the future what I may enjoy doing and that's what I love about this life is that it gives you twists and turns life is going to throw you some mucky stuff at times and it's all part of the journey and yeah who knows so success is so many different things to different people isn't it success for me today is finishing painting my hallway (laughs) it's as simple as that sometimes you just gotta break it down (laughs) I, I just want to say a huge huge thank you thank you so much oh my pleasure Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Jo for talking so eloquently about the ups and downs of her career. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork, to my editor Anna Gunn who had a particularly challenging time on this one, to Acast for hosting the podcast and of course to you for listening. Remember, if you think you or someone you know could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity or one word at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn or tweet me using the handle at soup serendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.